are listening to this, you are in agreement that it is always Friday the 13th. And today we are going to look at all four of the post-Core 4 Friday the 13th films. That would be 5, 6, 7, and 8. And we are going to hand out accolades, jeers, and cheers uh, accordingly. It's the Machete Awards Part 2. How you doing, guys? Wonderful. Doing very good, John. Let's start with best Jason moment in these films. Let's look at uh, the moment that each of you feel is kind of, you know, best exemplifies the cool factor of Jason or was the funniest moment or the scariest or however you want to interpret it. And I will give you some nominees. I'm sure you have your own ideas, but here are some choices. When Jason climbs out of the flipped RV in six, Jason lives. When Jason's mask pops off due to Tina's telekinesis in the new blood, and he glares at her, gnashing his rotted teeth. And uh, in Jason Takes Manhattan, part eight, when he looks up at the billboard and is confronted by his own quote-unquote face in the form of a <laughs> hockey billboard, a hockey mask. That's the, the moment in this entire series at which I can emotionally connect with the character of Jason Voorhees the most. <laughs> I, I, I have, in fact, stood in the street and stared up at a billboard of a hockey mask and, and felt befuddlement. Do you guys want to throw out some other nominees? Do you have more than one, or do you just want to give me your choices? The moment that I really connected with was that moment in Part 8. That was the, that was the moment when... when this series sort of takes a turn. I feel like Jason, as as you pointed out, John, it it, it crosses the meta line and becomes yeah. really aware of of Jason as a a, a cultural icon. So um, that would certainly be my pick of the post core four six is by far the best shot, and in fact, in some ways, probably the best directed film of the series thus far, uh, including the core four. Yeah. Uh, however, the two moments that really hang with me out of these four films are both out of seven. And uh, the first one is Jason attached to the rock by a chain at the bottom of Crystal Lake. I've always loved that image. And yeah. I've, I've mentioned it in other episodes, and I keep coming back to it because it's just fucking cool. I mean, it, it's, it, it is really the idea of a demon, a genie in a bottle. It's the genie in a bottle version of this series mythology. We have a giant undead serial killer, you know, who's been resurrected by dark magic of this weird lake and by past sins, you know, just chained there waiting to escape. And that's just fucking awesome. Uh, As kind of a runner up, you know, when we're discussing seven, I also have kind of a soft spot in my heart for that moment when Jason comes to the door and he's surrounded by birthday balloons. I, I, I think that's hilarious. And also just really well-framed and well-shot. Like, uh, like Seven is generally like kind of a murky, dark-looking film, but that one actually kind of grabs you know, the lighting and, and framing best. Yeah, well, uh, I just updated our profile picture on the It's Always Friday the 13th Facebook community page, URL Always Friday 13 on Facebook.com look at it but uh i updated it with a picture of jason in the lake with the bubbles and the mask and the chain around his neck and it's just an awesome image yeah it is it's such a powerful image at least for me that if you were to just open a movie with just that without any six movies preceding it i'd all instantly be on board it's such a cool and bizarre place to put him like the caged tiger but it's a supernatural killer so this is where he would be caged at the bottom of the lake that spawned him in the first place waiting to be freed so those are all really solid uh options and i am gonna go with just to sort of reflect uh more than one uh possibility here i think it's for me it's when jason climbs out of that flipped rv in jason lives And he just stands there like a boss. And it's really sort of the first time that the the latter-day Jason, the hulking, dead, rotting, uh, tattered clothes, 
zombie Jason just really gets to strut his stuff. And also it's one of the best stunts in the whole uh, series when that RV flips, it, it feels like an action movie. And I just want to add, I agree, uh, Mike, that I do think that six is the best directed and best shot of all of the films. Vic, uh, any thoughts on anything that we've just touched on? I agree certainly with your assessments of just about everything. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I feel like part eight isn't going to come up very often in the course of, <laughs> and it's interesting to note that there is this this one great moment that actually takes place in the Manhattan uh, uh, section of it. It just gives you such a taste for what that could have been. Um, again, I, I I still love the idea of Jason, you know, at a Rangers game. Uh, you know, they, they, there's all kinds of things they could have done with that, but that is a that is a great moment. But man, there's lots to choose from. One of our listeners um, put on our Facebook page, or maybe it was just a message to the page, uh, that originally he was supposed to box someone at Madison Square Garden, and they scaled that back. <laughs> yeah. That's- well, you know, it's interesting. I, I've, I've heard a rumor that uh, in earlier drafts of Freddy versus Jason, there was going to be a boxing match between the two characters. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, apparently on multiple occasions, someone for whatever reason has looked at this giant zombie slasher killer and said, this guy needs boxing gloves. We need to put him <laughs> in the ring. You know, I, I don't want to shoot that idea down because it, it does some fun, but I feel like Freddy's glove would, would sort of prevent him from throwing an effective punch. <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, he could maybe just stick the blades out through the boxing glove so that the blades would still be in play. Interesting. I think Jason would be far more appropriate in, uh, say, a, a WWE Battle Royale. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, we'll save the Freddy versus Jason talk for Freddy versus Jason. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, of course, we will be covering if anyone wasn't aware of that. Uh, so favorite resurrection of Jason Voorhees in these films, uh, we have basically a resurrection in each of them. And with this one, I'll just lead off and I'll give my, my selection for it. And then you guys can throw out whatever um, comes to mind for you as options. But for me, it's definitely part six, if I wanted to take it seriously, but I feel like I got to give Manhattan some love because I was howling with laughter when he was resurrected in that one. I mean, the ridiculous Rube Goldberg nature of this resurrection where he happens to be lying on a power line and then a boat's anchor happens to sever that power line, which somehow sends electricity through one half of the line and gives Jason a life-giving jolt. And then he just pops up and it's beyond ludicrous. So um, I just enjoyed it. So I'm going to give that the nod. It's always smart to give kind of a statement of intention for uh to the audience and i think once you see that scene you know exactly what this movie is going to provide (laughs) for good or for bad all right who's next hate to be uh you know the chicken who keeps pushing the same button for the feed corn but uh (laughs) seven you know yeah i i mean i i'm not i i i think that uh in terms of convolution uh all of these resurrections are the same you know um yeah, and no, no one can come up with a clean resurrection in these movies. They always have to involve like some weird mental gymnastics and logic flights of fancy. You know, the whole thing with uh, uh, you know Tommy Jarvis and Horshack. You know, going out to the thing in six, like it looks cool. I'll say there, I mean, again, like the idea of Seven's resurrection is better and stronger and more interesting and character driven, but. You know, the thing in six is just shot so well with, the you know, the lightning rod and, you know, the bolts of lightning. And, you know, when Tommy tries to set him on fire and it instantly starts raining and we're reminded that, no, you know, the storm <laughs> isn't just, you know, this coincidental thing. It's the elements are on Jason's side. So, wait, I'm sorry, Mark. Are you going with six or seven? I'm going to have to go with seven. I, 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 I'm kind of, a, again, I'm kind of saying uh, I love him chained at the bottom of the lake and then he comes out and I love how he like explodes out of water and she immediately passes out with fright. But if we're going to talk about like a well shot movie, then we're talking about sex. So that's, 
I, that's funny. I mean, it's just interesting because I would actually I would go with six for that for many of the reasons that you talked about, but also to me it's the sense that it calls back to the first film in in tone at least. I mean, some of what we've talked about in terms of the portents, the storm, like it it feels like this culmination of uh, uh, of events um, that that leads to that, and it's the one of the one of the few moments I feel like in the the post core four films that really does feel like it calls back to uh, the beginning of the series. Well, I mean, at the end of the first movie, dead Jason Voorhees comes out of Crystal Lake and menaces a girl. And at the beginning of part seven, dead Jason Voorhees comes out of Crystal Lake and menaces a girl. You know, I mean, we're, we're kind of coming back to these same motifs, but in new and interesting in different ways. Yeah, I mean, I like both of them, but my quibble with Seven is that if you really think about it, it's, again, somewhat ludicrous that she goes out there to the lake, and what happens? Does she feel that there's some presence out there waiting to be resurrected? Oh, me, 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 resurrect me, resurrect me. And she's like, (laughs) oh, it's Dad, he's ready, I'm bringing him back. I mean, what does she think is going to happen there? Dad's just going to climb out of the water and ask for a towel? It's ludicrous. Yeah. I mean, they're they're all like I like I said they're they're all like these weird Gordian knots. Like like no one has been able to crack just like a really simple like oh well this really obvious thing happens and that's what goes on. You know yeah. it's always going to be oh well Tommy Jarvis breaks out of the asylum he's got this guy and it's like yeah the thing that I liked about Six was you know and again kind of the unspoken sense that he's been called and yeah. that's why he's acting like this really crazy way not because he's crazy but because he's been driven insane by the dark magic of crystal lake and i buy that i buy that a lot more than i buy what happens what transpires with tina in seven because in six it's like he has been in an asylum and he's haunted by visions and nightmares of jason and he has to in order to continue living go and verify that this guy is really dead but the idea that he could be haunted and manipulated by supernatural forces as Vic said, and as you said, Mike, you know, I mean, I think it all kind of ties down to that subtle groundwork that has been laid since the the first one. And to me, that is the definitive Jason resurrection. I mean, as I said with my answer, I'm giving it to Manhattan for entertainment value, but it's clearly six for me. And it's because that is where uh, dead Jason lying in the grave is summoned by elemental forces back to life by the elements themselves in the form of lightning. And, and it, and it's very menacing and it's creepy. I, I really like the scene. It's like the crystal Lake itself says you're not done yet, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, it, it uh, you know, the opening of six does a really effective uh, job of taking like one of the best ideas of five and transposing it. Yes. Which also featured a, rainy graveyard resurrection for Jason, but this one um, was much more uh, meaningful. So incarnation of Jason, and that is to say he's a little different in each of these films. You know, usually he's been played by different actors. Now we've got Kane Hodder taking the mantle for several films. But uh, what, uh, what is your favorite Jason in one of these films? And I want to say first to preface that Overall, this is an even more badass Jason than in the core four. We can all agree that he's gained in power. Um, And I also want to point out that he's much better at knife throwing in these movies, like the dart that he throws into the cop's head in Jason Lives. So the candidates are Hallucination Jason in Tommy's Mind, which is part five. Fake Jason, also known as Roy the Ambulance Driver from Part 5. C.J. Graham's Dead Jason, the first Dead Jason, which of course is Part 6. The spine-showing, demon-faced, snarling Jason of A New Blood, The New Blood. Or uh, the kind of lame and slimy, fakey Jason in Part Wow, wait, 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 wait to lay the scales there, man. <laughs> Im- impartial introductions. <laughs> How about the totally awesome Jason or also really stupid Jason? Which you like? <laughs> yeah, this is probably a short discussion. Uh, uh, I think obviously uh, part seven is the, uh, the, the superior incarnation of Jason. 
yes, like the, the I think the makeup is good. We get Kane Hodder, who who's sort of actually giving a performance, but it's it's probably the only time among these zombie uh, Jason films that we get that those moments in the the third act in the climactic showdown with Tina, where he's vulnerable. Yeah. Where he seems, I mean, I think annoyed is the is the word that you used, but it's but getting Jason annoyed means he's really on his heels, even as a zombie that gives him some some layers and some interest uh, that I don't think he has in any of the other films. Personally, I'm going to vote for Six, and for the main reason that in Six he is basically a giant zombie, and he acts like a giant zombie in Six, whereas in Seven. We get a lot more personality out of Kane Hodder's performance, uh, but this is a zombie that is breathing and kind of twitching around and reacting like a, a dude in a mask versus an undead creature. And even though it's a more interesting performance, I've found it to be a less honest performance, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it's closer than it might immediately appear. I do really like the C.J. Graham version, uh, the one that you're referring to, Mike, because he really is, as I, I put it in the notes, he's truly dead Jason, you know? And I, I agree with that, that he's a very convincing zombie and super cool. But, you know, for me, he's never looked cooler than in New Blood. And as Vic mentioned, he takes a licking and keeps on ticking. Uh, we see different facets of him. He's tested a lot more. I do think that he has a lot of creative kills. It's the debut of Kane Hodder. There's just a long list of reasons why I got to give it the edge there. But definitely a good argument to be made for six as well. So let's move on to Hottest Girl. And there are countless nominees for this, oh. but I will I will give you some options. <laughs> We've got Debbie Sue Voorhees. Uh, playing Tina, of course, in part five. Uh, so many Tinas, so little time. And then in part six, we have Ron Palillo, a Horshack. Oh, wait, no, wrong category. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's a question of taste. But uh, Jennifer Cook playing Megan in part six, the female lead in Jason Lives. Lar Park Lincoln as, who knew, Tina. In The New Blood, also the lead, and uh, supporting actress in The New Blood, Elizabeth Catan, playing Robin. And finally, not last but not least, Saffron Henderson, playing J.J. Jarrett in Jason Takes Manhattan, and she was also in The Fly 2, by the way. She's kind of like your landlord. She just kind of pops up in, uh, you know, late, late, late 80s. Uh... She's nothing oh. like my goddamn landlord <laughs> who just raised my rent by the way <laughs> although I, I i you know yeah you never know well i gentlemen l let me lead off by saying that uh if there's one thing that the second four definitely does better than the core four is the uh the, the level of of attractiveness in the female cast and this is a really tough call because i personally find Miss Voorhees, uh, extremely attractive in five. And she also gets like a full on nude scene, uh, yeah. nude and sex scene. And that's fantastic. Um, Megan from six is probably the most personable seven has Robin, but, and she's cute, but you know, I, I think that she gets outclassed guys for me personally, Kelly who and eight. Oh, I yes. think because uh, Kelly Hu uh, goes on to have a far longer career and maintains her hotness across many uh, film and television titles, whereas uh, the lovely Miss Voorhees uh, all but vanishes. You know, so I mean, she's she's kind of a you know the 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 flame that burns bright but burns least, <laughs> whereas Kelly Hu is like forty seven and still like super hot. Well, it's an interesting thought process that you brought to your criteria there, Mike. I uh, can't argue with that. But um, what about you, Vic? Well, I'm I'm also going uh, off list here uh, because my choice is is definitely uh, the pre presumptive sociopath Melissa in Part Seven. Um, that scene where where uh, she's you know really hurling herself at Nick, and he's like you know, I don't even, I don't even like you. And she's like, yeah, that's not the point. Um, 
that's really attractive to me. And she's <laughs> she's an attractive girl, but that seems like a girl who's who's going to be interesting. Uh, in, in the sack. Uh, in the in the sack. <laughs> you know, Vic. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but I nominated Susan Jennifer Sullivan as Melissa for best character not named Voorhees. So <laughs> I think that uh, I am generally in agreement with you. I wouldn't say that she's super hot for me, but um, thank you for the look into your twisted psychology. There you go. <laughs> All right. For me, Megan is a real firecracker in Jason Lives, but I've kind of already forgotten what she looks like only three or four weeks after we watched the movie, which I kind of think of as a bad sign. Um, this this answer is definitely subjective, but for me, it's Lar Park Lincoln. Uh, I wish there was some cheesecake there. We get none. We are denied. But I'm just sweet on her, always have been. And frankly, I found her continual state of agitas quite endearing. Uh, so I, I just, she left me wanting more. And I think that that's uh, always a good sign as far as a woman's attractiveness. I didn't think, I don't, I, I meant to bring this up when we were talking about part eight and I, I don't think I got to it. There really is a, a clear division between the, the so-called final girls where you either have the, the plucky heroine or the mousy damaged heroine. Um, mm. and, and Tina is, uh, by leaps and bounds, the best of the mousy damaged heroines. Uh, I think well, it's right. interesting that you bring that up because I mean, I would say that she has qualities of both archetypes because she does kick Jason's ass, you know, and she finds her steely resolve. So I would say that she kind of starts out the, um, you know, flustered, weak, fearful, out of control, whatever mousy heroine and then by the end of it she's kind of a badass that is fair a fair assessment thank you well, you know it's interesting you, in, in six our 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 protagonist quote-unquote is uh the tommy. the mousy damaged quote-unquote heroine uh, of tommy and uh megan kind of you know fills the space that he's left by his you know his damaged sullenness you know yeah. um so yeah, I, I, Melissa and Megan are are both interesting characters to me because they're both like uh, short haired blondes with a lot of personality. And Megan is kind of mm-hmm. the, I, I mean, she's a tomboy and um, you know she's rebellious, but she's inherently good. Whereas uh, Melissa is very much daddy's little girl. You know, she brags about the pearl necklace. Which yes, contextually can be somewhat uncomfortable. But, We're talking uh, about real jewelry here, folks. Just so you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's daddy's little girl. She's a rich girl, la la la. But is evil at heart. You know, so yeah. I, I find them to be kind of uh, two sides of the same coin. Those two. All right. Well, let's move on to best character not named Voorhees. Uh, the nominees are, and of course, right ends are always welcome. Demon, played by Miguel Nunez Jr. from Part 5. Tom Matthews as Tommy Jarvis in Part 6. David Kagan as Sheriff Garris, also from Part 6. Terry Kaiser as Dr. Cruz in New Blood. Susan Jennifer Sullivan from New Blood, also in in, in the role of Melissa, of course. I think that's it for me. What do you guys have for nominees? I threw Megan in there uh, very much for the, the the reasons that you mentioned, John. Her, you know, in the in the hottest girl category, she did not make a, a tremendous impression on me. But as a character, she really stands out. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to go with, with Megan then. Uh, you know, uh, Demon has a lot of juice with me. I think Demon's a pretty cool cat, but uh, he also has some gonzo moments. The Motown singing, uh, <laughs> rampant. You'll feel better, the, Demon, after you've had a shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like like the rampant, uh, you know, like every other character in, in Part Five, he has like zero patience for any situation. He's kind of uh, an interesting character who's flawed by the movie that he's in. Gotta go with Megan. Um, you know, I wish uh, you know Seven has kind of a Crispin Glover wannabe type guy and the sci-fi writer. So he's mm-hmm. kind of close, but he doesn't have quite the same level of charm that Crispin Glover was able to bring to his role in four. So I found him 75% annoying, 25% funny. Yeah. Yeah. That's why he didn't make the cut for me. But uh, another spoiler, 
he will feature in some future categories rather prominently. Uh, so I'm going to give it to Susan Jennifer Sullivan as Melissa in part seven. This is kind of where I now intersect with Vic's take on it. Like I may not have found her like smoking hot, but I found her really funny in how weird she is and how she thinks that her, her um, handling of every situation that she's in control of it. And in reality, most of the time she's way behind and getting left in the dust. And, and then she does have that liaison with the writer where she's in charge again. But in the fact that she comes in so cluelessly at the end and she has no idea that anyone has been getting killed and she's got that same attitude all the way to the moment where Jason buries an ax in her and of course, she she has somewhat of a spectacular demise. So I just I think that that character is is my favorite uh, female and and really male other than Jason in any of these films. Funniest line or most amusing moment? Some nominees for the jury to consider: Tommy's breakfast freakout in part five, <laughs> a new beginning. <laughs> Roy oh carries a picture of himself in his wallet, also from five. <laughs> <Yeah>, <laughs> the woman trying to give Jason her credit cards in part six. Oh, and uh, if you'll forgive me, guys, I need to provide a little context for the next one. Uh, the RV couple, Court and Nikki, in part six. And I'm going to read a few lines uh, from this. Court. Hey, Nikki, what are you doing back there? Taking a dump? Mind if I come back and snatch a peek or vice versa? <laughs> Nikki, they're having sex a little bit later. This is the best, the best, but you got to keep it up till the end of the song. Court, out of breath. How much longer? Nikki, oh, about 10 minutes. Court looks at her apprehensively. <laughs> Nikki, fuck jason's just pulled the power to the rv and the lights go out the song goes off and court's like oh yeah nikki says court you did it already and court says oh come on wasn't that the end of the song <laughs> i can relate to that on several levels so then by the way when they hear the noise outside one of them i believe it's court says what if it's that guy jason which of course it is all right back to the list tommy's face and megan's crotch also part five i'm, I'm six rather Eddie the writer in seven, a couple of choice quotes from him. I've got it. Star mummy. And yeah. I've got a date with a soap on a rope. And finally, two more for you to consider. Jason is resurrected in eight. And Jason looks up at the billboard in eight. There are many hilarious moments in five. None of them are intentional. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have to put an asterisk next to that. Uh, six for me is uh, often very clever, but I, I, you know, as I've mentioned in prior podcasts, I find it very scripty. Uh, it, it is like kind of trying a little too hard, but when it does land, it, it does. Uh, seven is kind of a little bit more like five, but it's got bigger spikes. Like, uh, you know, they're trying hard and they're getting like really off the wall, fun, interesting lines in there. And, uh, yeah. eight. Yeah, I really connect with uh, that, you know, like I've said, I went, when Jason looks up that, at that bull board, I'm just like, I'm with you, brother. I know exactly what you're talking about. If there's one moment that sticks out out of all of these, it's uh, near the end of six. Two of the very young campers are uh, commiserating on the fact that their camp has been attacked by a giant undead zombie slasher killer. <laughs> one turns to the other and goes, so what were you going to be when you grew up? <laughs> Excellent. And to uh, my, yeah, to my yeah, to my mind, that is the line that is both most clever and funny, and is also meant to be. Yeah, I totally agree with you, though, Mike. There's a lot of misses in in six. It, it gets corny a lot of the time. The tough talk by the police and Tommy and all. Yeah. That. Oof, oh yeah. It's painful. To yeah, Tommy and the cop are are you know. The, you know, they, they can't help but, and, and all of it is like very screenwritery, backflippy kind of stuff where like no one can just say anything normally. They've got to like come all the way around the, the block on it in some really rambunctious way. And, you know, but Seven's got some great, great, great lines. Eight has none, but it does have some cool moments. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with those kids at the end of six. Like, I actually found that to be charming because 
by the end of that movie, I it was super clear that it wasn't even trying to be a horror movie. So I was just enjoying it on its own, you know, kind of action horror comedy aspects. Yeah. yeah, it succeeds at that. Vic, uh, where do you fall in this discussion? I'm going to go with one of the uh, what feels like a non sequitur from uh, part seven that could be intentional and could be not. I think that that's part of what lends uh, it so much humor. And it is David's line to Robin as they are dancing. You know what I love about you? You hardly sweat. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I want to echo what you both have basically concurred on that for me, the Humor in Seven is the most successful consistently, and it is always a little off-center and unforced, and even as weird as it is, there's something naturalistic about it, and I really love that stuff. And while it's a little harder for me to pick out um, like one line that stands out above all the rest, I agree with you guys um, about Seven overall, and I'm going to just go with the uh, soap on a rope because that's just something that I've carried with me since the first time I saw (laughs) the film in the theater. Well, you know, see, here's the thing is, like, I mean, Seven stands out uh, in the sense that, I mean, ordinarily when you have really good character work, you also have really good dialogue. And Seven, when it comes to the character work, uh, is almost as inept and, and gonzo as Five but it has these gigantic spikes of interesting dialogue. So, I mean, it's almost like someone took a script on par with five and handed it to, like, Diablo Cody or somebody. Yeah. Or, like, a... A, a punch-up. Or a dialogue. Yeah, a punch-up. Like, it feels like an inept script that was given a dialogue punch-up. Well, I mean, I'll only disagree slightly in that I, I think that I like the film more than you do overall. And I think Vic pointed out that some some of the relationshipy stuff between Nick and Tina uh and the way that we learn things about Nick I think that those scenes are relatively skillful and I think that Cruz was close to my favorite character in any of these um so overall I would say that the characters are pretty strong for Friday the 13th at least like the main 3 characters yeah I mean, the, the leads are solid I'll give you yeah. that John, I just I don't want to sail past this. You deserve a lot of credit for selling the the Court and Nikki scene. Um, <laughs> you, you really, you did your homework on that. I want you to know I appreciate it. it did not it did not uh, you know go home with the gold, but that is kind of one of the big set pieces of six. I yeah. you know I, I six you know uh, you you can easily say that six exists before and after that sequence because we have the two funniest characters. In in the movie, and then they die in like the most spectacular way of of the series, you know. So I, I you you could have like an I mean you know most of the joys of that movie come from that one sequence and those three characters, you know, Court and Nikki and Jason Voorhees. You know, as a brief tangent, probably hopefully, <laughs> I just want to say that if I could only take three of these movies with me to a desert island, and that would be the only Friday the Thirteenth that I could experience, I would go with two, six, and seven. What would you really? guys go with? Yeah, uh, two, four, and six for me, man. I, I wasn't prepared for this question, John. You can't <laughs> bring these things on me. I'm going off script. So, I'm gonna go with two, six, and seven as well. I think I don't know the twins and four though. I'm on desert island. See, I, the only problem, and again, and I don't want to go too far down the road, but the, the only problem with four for me is just that it feels kind of like the culmination of all of those first three movies that preceded it. And I find it a little bit tedious at times, even though I love Crispin Glover and you, you know, there's the twins and yada, yada. Um, to me, I just, I don't, I feel like we, we get everything that's good about four in other movies. So I just want to go with the three that, uh, have the biggest spikes overall. I'm going to change my answer. I'm going to take three copies of party (laughs) (laughs) and rub them all over your body. In case one of them gets damaged, I'm going to need, you know. <laughs> that is fantastic. You're going to talk to talk to them like Wilson the soccer ball. <laughs> <laughs> On to coolest weapon. So, a few category, um, a few choices for you to pick from. The leather strap over the eyes in A New Beginning. The sleeping bag in New Blood. 
the Bushmaster 5000 slash Weed Whacker, whatever you want to call it, in New Blood. The Barrel of Toxic Waste in 8. And that's all I got. How about the machete? The machete in, um, which one was that? All of them. (laughs) (laughs) Do we have a Friday the 13th without a machete? That would be an interesting question. Is there a machete in the first one? I don't think so. I think it's a bow and arrow. Oh, there's an axe in that one and a knife. Eh, Maybe no machete. Maybe no machete. I think the machete is kind of like uh, the mask. It doesn't show. It, it's it's a core element of the character that doesn't show up until later in the series. Uh, I for me, it's it's sleeping bag full stop. I, I and that's one of the most interesting and hilarious kills of this entire franchise. Vic, I'm going to go uh, off the list. Uh, my pick for Jason's coolest weapon, uh, starting in part six, is his hand. This is the point at which Jason begins to be able to punch through people. You know, he seems to relish that. I think we see that. I, obviously, I remember it with uh, uh, Horshack in uh, part six. Uh, but I think we see that a few times over yeah. the next couple of movies. And, um, yeah, that's my that's my pick. That's an interesting he choice, does, Vic. Yeah, he does punch a dude's head off in eight, you know, and uh, crush crushes another guy's skull in seven. Yeah, I, I, he, he's a dude with uh, big monster mitts. Yeah, he punches through someone in New Blood. Uh, yeah. It, there's a lot of uh, just devastating punches that, you know, either knock someone's head off or go straight through the body. That's definitely a solid uh, write-in. So I am going to go with, in this particular category, because we're talking about the weapon itself, I'm going to go with the Bushmaster 5000. Uh, the shots of him walking with that, giant saw blade on the end of that long uh pole it's just it's really cool and it it looks like it's going to result in a better kill than what we ultimately get but the category is not best kill it's coolest weapon so i'm going to go with that all right you know i mean it is uh yeah it it is in fact the first time that we see jason using motorized instruments Mm mm-hmm even when presented with the opportunity to use a chainsaw on five he just uh throws it away yeah, he really isn't into the sort of the higher tech weapons. Like he would never pick up an M60 and start blazing away with it. Right, and you know, Vic, it isn't. You know, it's interesting that you bring up his hands because this is a character who knows, has known since three, that he's strong enough to kill someone with his bare hands. Which leads us to believe that the one and only reason that he uses weapons isn't out of necessity, but out of enjoyment. Yes. Definitely. He seems to take pleasure in choosing different implements of mayhem and using them in different ways. Like, I mean, he he doesn't want to get bored and stop loving his work. It's something we've talked about a lot, though. I mean, going back to that idea that Jason won't kill you if you're unconscious is that he does like to scare you. You know, like he wants to find some way to to freak you out a little bit. Um, Well, it has to be sport for him. Like, I don't think Jason would take any pleasure from pushing a button and having an A-bomb go off or something yeah. like that. But he does pick up a tent spike and go, you know, I wonder wonder if I could kill somebody with this. I'm sure you guys re- remember that, that sequence in uh, Student Bodies where, uh, you know, the, the killer has, like, a long line of implements and he lands on a paperclip. Right. <laughs> he kills someone with a paperclip. Uh, there, there's also a moment in Sleepaway Camp 2 in which I'm on a Springsteen. Uh, kind of goes through her, her list of options and decides on a hairbrush, you know. Hmm. So I, I, I think it's been noticed by, you know, satirists of the genre. Do you think if Jason walked into the president's war room during a tense nuclear standoff, he would push the red button? <laughs> <laughs> Only after he killed everyone in the room. <laughs> Gentlemen, this is the war room. You Thank can't you. fight in here. I was I was about to go there. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah, you can't fight it here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Most effective ending. To me, there's only two nominees: Jason Lives or New Blood. You mean you mean the toxic waste washing away the the years of zombiness doesn't? Uh... Sadly, it did not make the cut. I'm actually. You know what? I'm not going to lie. I actually will go with that uh, for the for the simple reason that while inexplicable, it does seek to connect the character with the, the, the child that he was. You know, there's a, there's a lot of imagery leading up to that. It doesn't make any sense. 
Vic, you're off the podcast. It's very different. That's fair. I totally get what you're saying because I'm, you know, eight is similar in five because they're both like the two most terrible movies, but they're also at the same time, you know, the two movies they are kind of reaching the farthest in terms of, you know, exploring the mythology. When Jason goes out to meet Tommy on the boat in six, I know what's going to happen. Uh, you know, I didn't see maybe dad coming out of the water, but am I surprised that Jason wound up chained to a rock at the bottom of the, the lake again? No. Was I surprised when the toxic waste washed away and there was a little boy in a bathing suit? Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, the category is most effective ending, not the most surprising ending, but uh, okay. You know, your opinion is valid. How about you, Mike? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to go for like the more obvious, like fastball down the middle of six, uh, because I, and the, the entire movie is this action horror comedy shot like an eighties music video. And, um, you know, they bring that sensibility to, you know, the, the final showdown at the very end, we have Tommy, uh, who's been bedeviled by this character for three movies now in a boat on Crystal Lake. He decides to surround himself with fire, uh, not because it's actually going to stop Jason Voorhees, but just because it looks cool, you know? And, of course, Jason leaps out, and he ends up in uh, the bottom, chains the rock, this image that I, I love so much. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, for, for me, six is kind of a gimme. Well, to me, it's part five, because it's so amazing that the guy kills the girl twice in one scene at the end of the film, one in a dream and one in reality that I didn't see that coming. So that makes it the most effective ending of all time. No, (laughs) (laughs) I got to give the edge to new blood here. Uh, Even though there's a definite cheese factor with daddy dearest rising from the lake to collar a noticeably befuddled Jason Voorhees. It's aside from that, the best, longest and most enjoyable third act of the series for me. And I mean, yes, the entire series. Uh, Also, it's a wash on lameness of the actual coup de gras because even though I object to daddy and the way that that plays out, Jason refuses to kill Megan in six. Uh, That annoys me as well, that he just kind of like, oh, I guess I'll just brush you aside because suddenly I only care about Tommy. I didn't like that. So those those things kind of even each other out, even though he does the same thing with Nick in seven, he kind of handles him with kid gloves uh, rather than having, you know, taking advantage of many opportunities to kill him. I still think that overall best third act of the series, it's got to be part seven Fair enough. best kill, yeah. best kill. Let us take into account creativity, impact, quality of VFX and whatever other factors you value. So we've got the belt <laughs> kill, the belt kill in part five. Paula gets mauled semi-off camera in the cabin in part six, put through the window and whatnot. Jason breaks Sheriff Garris's back, also in part six. The guy gets his head punched off in eight. Uh, the toxic bath for Uncle Charles McCullough in eight. And I uh, went out of order here, but sleeping bag from part seven. I mean, I'm going to say the sleeping bag is probably the best kill, but I will leave the discussion of that uh, to someone else and go with the belt over the eyes in part five. Um, I think that that stands out so much largely in relief to the rest of the film. I know we spent a lot of time talking about that scene uh, as as being one of the most effective scenes in, the, in this otherwise sort of uh, a very amateur film. Um, and the effects are good. It's the original uh i think there's there's not anything really that that you can compare to that in any of the other films it's good it's a really good scene and it's a it's a it's a hell of a capper it's one of the one of the scenes that stuck with me uh you know through the the 20 odd years since i first saw it mm-hmm. yeah in yeah. general the quality of the kills in <laughs> these films are not quite at the level in terms of gore and visceral impact that the core four had so I think that the belt kill really does kind of stand out in that way because it is horrible to watch. It's very uh, – um, you can just feel this guy's suffering as this belt cinches into his eye sockets and crushes his skull. It's horrible. So that's really good. Uh, this is a landslide vote for me. Two words, sleeping bag. I've already given a uh, a vote for a sleeping bag in the weapons category. So with this one, I'm going to change it up. Uh, and 
you know, I'm kind of split between Paula because Paula is one of the more uh, sympathetic characters for me uh, in Six. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, her death is, even though it's off screen, the results of it are horrible. Um, it's the one moment in that film that actually registers as horror movie. Too. Well, I, I mean, if we had opened with just that sequence, we would think, holy shit, this is going to be one of the scariest movies ever. You know, I would probably give, uh, I mean, you know, Sleeping Bag in 7 and the dude getting his head punched off in 8 are the two more famous kills. I mean, Paula actually had some visceral impact, but, you know, those are the two that you're going to talk about in terms of Friday the 13th movies, especially from this era. So, you know, let's give it to Darius. I'm going to say Darius gets his head punched off. Why? Because when his head flies off and it lands in the dumpster, <laughs> the dumpster's lid slams shut. Yeah. I think that that's a very interesting observation, Mike. And I do think that, like, if you're going to compare something to the wheelchair clattering down the stairs, it would probably be that one. Like, if there was going to be another five movies after eight with a previously on Friday the 13th montage, I think that kill would be in every single one of them. Yeah, it would be sleeping bag and uh, Darius's head getting blown off. And everything else would just be collateral damage. It's a bravura kill. Like, the, the head rattling down that rooftop and, and landing into the dumpster, it is kind of like the wheelchair. It, 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 it's good stuff, got to say. So uh, one last note about Paula, though. Like, part of the effect of that is the aftermath, where we see just the inside of that cabin completely painted in blood, which is yeah. quite chilling. All yeah, right, final bonus question. Um, which of these films is your favorite? I, I do have to go with part seven. Uh, I mean, I feel like we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about that. I think six is probably not as rough around the edges. It feels a little more, uh, you know, like a, like a, a Hollywood, a competently directed Hollywood film. Um, but part seven really does feel like the only time that we see Jason square off with uh you know, a proper foe with someone that can, that can really match him blow for blow. Um, and that's, that's something that, that generates a kind of excitement in me that I didn't get out of, uh, uh, many of the other films of these four films. It's act three and seven as a whole movie though. I would say six, you know, just, just waiting through that first hour and seven is, is a little difficult. Uh, whereas six is like, it never reaches the heights of Act 3 of 7, but I never found it, like, intolerable, you know? So, it's a tough call. Yeah, it's a, it, it's, it's a really... And, you know, it is interesting that um, we have these two, like, kind of flawed but otherwise interestingly and solid and entertaining movies in the middle, and they're bracketed by the two worst movies of the franchise. Yeah, yeah. which is fortunate, really. Uh, I mean, if there had been two really horrible ones back-to-back... Uh, who knows? Maybe we wouldn't have gotten the other two. Maybe that would have killed the franchise. But uh, true, you know. Yeah, it, the, the uh, best thing that could be said about eight is it spread out the shittiness. I mean, I kind of agree, Mike, in that I think Jason Lives is the best overall, start to finish. Um, but it does operate sort of outside of the genre in in a way that I enjoy. But you know, I'm give me new blood because it it is both honestly funnier. And it, it has that spectacular final half an hour. So it's a close call, though. All right, gentlemen. Well, you know, uh, I, I, go ahead. I, I just to throw this out there, I, I, one, one kind of closing thought that I just had is, in, you know, the difference between the core four and these four is in the first four movies, the logline is a psycho killer is going around killing teenagers. And in that sense, like, I mean, kind of like uh, we were talking about, you know, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't go for two or four on the desert island because they're kind of they're both offering kind of the same thing. The interesting thing about the latter four, five, six, seven, eight, is from five onward, you know, the filmmakers are thinking, okay, what do we do that's different? What's the hook in this one? You know? So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. each one of these movies reaches farther and pushes the boundaries of its central premise more. And yeah. so we get some really interesting stuff like Act Three of Seven. And we get some really terrible stuff, like 99% of five, you know. But, um, you know, these are in some ways, like, more, they're vastly more um, 
what's the word? Ambitious. And ambition will either take you all the way down the road or else, uh, you know, you'll trip and fall on your ass, you know, but at least they're trying to do something different than a dude walks around and kills people. That's yeah. a great point. And that's kind of what, bringing us back to why I wouldn't take four onto that desert island is that I feel like they really needed to start shaking it up, you know, after that. It's like it really is that log line over and over and over. And it's it's the most recycled of all of the films. And as you said, say what you want about the second group. They're all pushing the envelope. They're all being more conceptually challenging of the franchise. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But we're not just going through... Like, I think if they were literally just replaying the first four movies... Uh, with these, it, it, it would be monotonous very, very quickly. It was, it was totally played out by the end of four. Yeah, absolutely and, agree. And that may be a, a chilling premonition of what's to come in terms of ambition and how it, it might trip you up as you, you push yourself further and further from uh, what this, the franchise does well. Uh, we might even push it outside of the realm of possibility and take a little trip to hell with jason yeah. next time that's what we'll be doing all right thanks gentlemen uh it's been a pleasure as always as always easy out. and uh by the way everyone out there like our facebook yes like our facebook and please go to the itunes store and uh give us a review there or on uh, podbean or on stitcher or however you're listening to this show we would really appreciate it if you just, you know, say a few words about it and give us a nice star rating or whatever it's set up to do on that platform. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll see you all soon. Bye now.